welcome to the podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. David Cannon, and uh, I work here at the School of Psychology at University of Queensland. Great. So let's start off with how you actually got into psychology. What piqued your interest as a high school student? For me, it's interesting because I actually had a career before this one, the one I'm in now. But when I was young, going through university the first time around, I actually studied physics and science. And uh, my sister was an educational psychologist. And I was very interested in all the sort of things that she was doing. And uh, that's kind of what got me into it. Okay, so what made you go back to university and like actually study the specific psychology that you're in now? Well, that was quite a few years ago now, but um, but I used to work in software development and I was a project manager. And I had large teams of people. And one of the problems was really understanding the dynamics of how people all interacted and their behavior. So it was a natural thing for me to basically begin to wonder how I could better do my job in making people work together better. So I decided to take a couple of courses in psychology, and I found it absolutely fascinating. So that's kind of like where that began. And what made you want to actually go on into research? Okay, so I did an undergraduate degree here, an honours degree in psychological science, and that was the first time I'd really been introduced to like doing my own research and working with some of the other academics here. And I found that fascinating. I was really interested in, the, in just how it all hung together and how it was done. So that was really how I managed to sort of become interested in it. And what was your PhD on? My PhD? My PhD is mainly looking at empathy. And basically, we I looked at mainly things like eye gaze. So looking at emotion and how people actually sense emotions from other people's faces, body language, that kind of thing. So I can see how that tails into your general interest fields now, but do you want to talk about what you like to study in general? Yeah, my main areas that I really enjoy are looking at is definitely emotion, but I'm very interested in things like emotion contagion. I'm very interested in eye tracking and actually how that can help us understand the way that people look at each other's faces specifically. Because there's a lot more to it than people don't understand, um, really, when they get the chance to look at their own gaze patterns, they'd be amazed at what they're actually looking at and how long they look at certain parts of another person's face. So what do you think this says about you as a person, that this is what you've chosen to research? I think what it says about me is that I'm fascinated by um, the way people interact. Like, and I, I find humans, I mean, our, our social and emotional engagements are incredibly complex incredibly difficult to understand at times it's a very confusing world out there and sometimes you just don't know why you know people react or respond the way they do to you so that's that's the key to that and i noticed that you look at a lot of social and emotional function um, would you like to actually explain what that means to a non-psychologist social and emotional function well, basically, social function is the way that you know people interact both on an individual basis and, say, in a group basis. So when we are in groups, we tend to um, act and respond to others differently than when we are one-on-one. Social function is really how well we do that. And some people are better than, that, than others. I mean, take the case of people with, like, mild aspergers and things like that. I'm sure there are plenty of people like that here working at the university. Um, I could be one of them. You know, you go into a room and people find it very difficult to be the first person to talk to somebody or they won't engage each other in eye contact, that sort of thing. So their social function may be slightly different. So social function is really that sort of the level on which we're able to engage with each other and how well we actually do that. Okay. And now just moving on 
to a bit of advice, which I always like to ask. So what advice would you give for a uni student who's starting out at university? There are, it's really difficult. That's a very difficult thing to actually answer because, I mean, I have my own kids and I give them advice all the time, which they hate. But I would say that it's most people don't really know what they want to do when they come to university and most people do want to look around. So unless you've been driven for years by a desire to become a lawyer or a psychologist or a doctor, then look around, have a good think about it, come and engage with others, do different things and get a feel for what you actually like to do the most because that will be the thing you'll be most successful at. Great. So again, another piece of advice, what book would you recommend for people to pick up and read? My book that I would advise people to read is by uh, Haruki Murakami, one of my favourite authors. He is my favourite author. And the book I loved recently that I read was um, Colourless Sukuru Tazaki and His Years of Pilgrimage. It's a wonderful story, and um, I couldn't put it down. And why exactly was that? Because it's all about how this, the, this person interacts with his friends and how things change over time. And it's very, it's, a, it's analogous to the, uh, the way that a lot of us live our lives. Uh, you know, our interaction with our own little group changes as we evolve, as we grow older. And um, he was sort of, he felt like he was different to the others. And um, it's a fascinating story and one that I would recommend people read. I won't give away the plot. <laughs> That's all good. Uh, well, I'll have to pick it up now. So thank yeah. you. So moving on to your specific research that you're doing at the moment. So you're talking before about eye gaze behaviour. Could you talk a bit about what you're doing at the moment with that? Okay. Well, eye gaze behaviour, I say, is something that, that we use here to look at social and emotional function. We can use it with children. So we quite often use it with young infants. We've actually eye tracked children as young as the age of six weeks old, which is very, very challenging because they don't want to look at the screen and their visual acuity is sometimes not so good. But we do a bit of work with them. But most of the work tends to be looking at people's relationship with eye, like looking at someone's face and empathy. So basically what we look and we measure is how long people spend, say, looking at the eye region of somebody's face. And that can tell us a lot. And the number of fixations people make, so that's the number of times that you look at a particular region. Eyes are the place where people tend to get most of their social and emotional information from each other. And if you don't look at someone's eyes when you're speaking to them, you tend to miss out on a lot of social cues and emotional cues. Now, some people like, for instance, people that you'd say have problems with social interaction, quite often don't maintain eye contact the way other people do. And I noticed that you were looking at trait empathy and eye contact. Okay, well, let me just say that empathy is one of the most difficult things to actually measure. And there are a lot of definitions of empathy. So I might just say that the simplest definition of empathy is understanding and sharing the thoughts and feelings, well, mainly the feelings of others. So that's what's important about empathy, is that ability to do that well. And how does that relate to eye contact? Okay, yeah, so basically the thing that we found, one study that we did a couple of years ago, which has been well received, was published um, a couple of years ago. What we found was that there's a relationship between the level of empathy that people have, I'm talking about emotional empathy, and the amount of time that they look in someone's eyes. So the more empathic you are, the more time you will spend looking at someone's eye region. And uh, that was like a key, a key element, which hadn't actually been discovered before. Okay, well, let's move away a little bit from eye gaze because it's making me very conscious mm. of how much I'm looking at you. So I noticed that you list psychophysiology as one of your areas of interest. Yep. Psychophysiology is basically how we measure some biological signs that people have when they actually are engaging in particular behaviour. So things like heart rate, 
we'll look at skin conductance. So skin conductance is a, a good way of looking at whether someone has had a, a, a you know like some kind of an emotional event happen. So if you're looking at something really sad or or, or thought evoking, your skin conductance rate will, will drive up. Other things are like EMG, which is electromyography, and that's where you place little sensors on someone's face and you can measure whether they're smiling or frowning and that kind of thing to a particular stimulus like a face or a picture or something like that. That's kind of like where psychophysiology is. We measure those tiny little currents that come out of people's muscles and we make decisions about what that means. And what have you found through that sort of research? Well, that research has, has been going on for a very long time. I mean, decades that people have been using that kind of thing. ERP is something that we, we fix sensors to people's heads and we look at particular impulses and waves coming from brain regions. And we can make some kinds of assessments on what's going on in people's minds when they see things. Or not so much what's going on in their minds, but which parts of the brain are activated. But things like electromyography, where we're measuring, say, a smile, that will show us whether someone is engaging in mimicry. So if I look at you and you smile, I might smile back, that sort of thing. That's We measure that kind of thing. And that can tell us whether or not that particular stimulus is having an effect on someone, maybe the way that we want it to do. And we might correlate that with something like empathy and say people with higher empathy tend to smile more at other people or are better mimicry responses. And does that sort of research suffer from a difficulty between correlation and causation? Yes, but we never say that there's a, a specific cause. Basically, most of these things are suggestive. So it suggests that there might be a, a relationship. And we do more, that's what science is all about. We do more work then to see whether or not we're going down the right track with it. I noticed that you also look at emotion and artificial intelligence. Yes, I do. So artificial intelligence, or specifically robotics, is something I'm very interested in. And we're currently negotiating on perhaps buying a robot here to look at really human emotional response to artificial intelligence and robotics. It's something that we're all going to have to deal with as time goes on, because we're going to have robots in our homes. We're going to have robots that we'll interact with at work and out there in commercial world. So we need to know some of the psychological um, uh, responses that people will have to these things. And how far could you actually take that research? That's a good question. It's a burgeoning area. More people are starting to look at it. So coming up with something completely new may be a little difficult because people are already looking very closely at this. But one of the areas that we think we can we can do something with it is in the field of aging. So we might be able to like make people less lonely or reduce things like depression, that sort of thing, by using a robot to you know perform the function that humans generally perform, but where we can't we can't put a human into a particular location all the time. Having something like that at home where you're an old older person and you've got a robot to speak to that can actually respond to you emotionally might make a huge difference to your life. And moving on now to uh, self-disclosure in relation to social media, a very yeah. interesting topic, particularly nowadays. Certainly is. I actually have a couple of my honor students are working on a couple of projects right now related to this one of the things so self-disclosure is where we you know give you know intimate details about ourselves on things like facebook and it's amazing how you know you you might struggle to tell someone something very intimate about yourself one-to-one but for some reason people are go on facebook and tell people that they hardly know sometimes hundreds of people they hardly know some intimate details about their lives so 
what does that really mean? Why do people do that? Is it related to things like um, like loneliness? And, and in terms of how we respond to it, if you constantly see someone self-disclosing on Facebook negative information, you might actually reduce your levels of compassion and care for what they're doing. And we're interested to see that whether that actually happens. And finally, I noticed that you'd recently published an article about methods to assess social cognition. Could you tell me a little bit about what you found there? Well, basically, it's not a super interesting piece of research. That it's really just it's an analysis of things that measure things like social social cognition and cognitive responses. But it's a useful thing to have done because it actually helps others. They can go to our report, look at it, and try to work out what's the best kind of measure that they can use for their study. Great. So you currently teach third year and fourth year psychology courses. Could you tell me about a little bit about what you teach with those? Sure. Um, third year course is an important one. It's a core course, and that means that everybody in that year has to take the course. So there's about 250 to 300 students enrolled in that. And what that one is, it's basically called Topics in Applied Psychology. And it's an interesting course for students, so it's an important course, and they, not, not all of them find it fascinating, but it's really looking at how we actually apply psychology in the wild. It gives students an idea of, of how psychologists actually work. And what about your other course? So the fourth year course is another core course, and it's, a, it's an honours year course, and uh, it's called Scientist Practitioner. And basically the idea behind that course is that students will learn how, again, psychologists out there practicing in things like neuropsychology, clinical psychology, organizational psychology, will actually use things like what we call evidence-based practice, which is like looking at the, the science, looking at the work that's out there and using that in the kind of work that they do and, and feeding back into that as well. And just to finish up, would you like to tell me a bit about what you're hoping to do in the future for your research? Uh, yeah, I think right now my sort of I'll continue with my emotion-based research, and and eye tracking will continue to to form part of that. But I'm very, as I said before, I'm very interested in artificial intelligence, and I want to take that to another level. And I'm also very interested in things like virtual reality and augmented reality. They have lots of applications beyond you know some of the the gaming style things that people are into. For psychology, the ability to put someone through an experience where they don't actually have to be on a location is a very, very interesting thing. We could say, put a headset on someone and see if they can actually experience something which they couldn't experience before. So if you had like depression, you could have people look at something that maybe makes them happy and be involved in that. There are lots and lots of applications there. Uh, so particularly, uh, you mentioned before about kind of autistic people. What would be the applications for those? Okay, well, autistic people quite often have some problems with interacting with others you know, on a one-to-one -one basis. They don't like to look at people's faces, especially children. As people grow older, they tend to be able to learn how to do this quite well. But some kids have problems interacting. And what we can actually do is use different methods so we can have them learn things like uh, what an emotion is put on someone's face. Without having to look at someone's face, we can use different types of stimuli. You know, it's like maybe robots. That kind of thing, you know, like which they don't have to interact with as they would with a human being. OK, so those kind of possibilities are all out there with things like artificial intelligence and virtual reality. And what have you found or at least what are you looking forward to for the applications? I know you talked about aging, but other disabled people. Yes. I mean, if you're, you know, unfortunately in a position where you're bedridden, something like that and can't get out to experience things anymore, that might apply to, to some folks who are. Uh, very ill 
or um, or old people who cannot get out the way that they they would like to, and perhaps don't have family to to help them out. We can maybe build things where they can have experiences and even communicate with others through virtual reality. We might be able to communicate with friends and things like that and actually see them. So yeah. Great. Well, thank you for sitting down with me. That's okay. You're welcome. Mm-hmm.